We believe you have a story to share. For 2,000 years, humankind has believed in the power of story. In healthcare, we're finding ways to better heal those who are in front of us. Join us as we explore healing stories now. Well, we want to welcome everyone to another special edition to Healing Stories podcast. And with us, we have Ken Kushner today, uh, one of the greats in Zen leadership, as well as a practitioner within Wisconsin, uh, who has really developed a strategy to bring people into a deeper sense of their hurrah. And that's something that we'll talk about tonight. But uh, one of the things that we always do, and Ken, I want to welcome you and thank you for taking the time with us this evening. Well, thank you. I appreciate your reaching out to me, and I've been uh, looking forward to this very much. And given the day today, I, I just have to wish everyone a happy new year. That's right, a happy new year. And in our first uh, podcast of the new year, which brings oh. with it um, an opportunity to really uh, open us up. And I feel like that's the conversation uh, that we're having. Would it be all right, Ken, if you just went ahead and, and introduced yourself to the audience tonight? Yeah, okay. So as I said, my name is Ken Kushner, and I live in Madison, Wisconsin. And uh, I am a, well, as of yesterday, I would have said I'm a psychologist by profession. Um, however, I retired yesterday. Wow. And yeah. uh, I just finished up uh, a 40-year career as a clinical psychologist working and teaching in departments of family medicine. So working with prime, very working very closely with primary care physicians on a number of issues, including interviewing, bedside manner, uh, as well as self-care issues such as uh, burnout and resilience. Uh, I, I was at the University of Wisconsin uh, as a professor. I just finished up 36 years there. And before that, I was uh, four years, almost four years, at the Medical College of Ohio in Toledo. Uh, that's one hat, uh, and the other is I'm a, I'm a Zen priest, I'm a uh, Zen teacher, and I've been training in Zen, oh, really pretty much as long as I worked as a psychologist. Um, I uh, started, let's see, in 19, I have to think back, 77, uh, uh, the headquarters of my, of my Zen organization where my teachers were. Uh, uh, is in uh, Honolulu, uh, and I've spent uh, extensive time there, as well as I founded the uh, the branch of our organization in Wisconsin, and we call it uh, Chosenchi Betsuin. Chosenchi is the name of our Zen lineage. Betsuin means it's a sub-temple, and we also call it the International Zen Dojo of Wisconsin. But in addition to... Uh, or as part of that, I uh, study and teach what's called Kudo, the, the so-called Zen art of archery. And there's a very famous book. It's been called the most famous book, the most influential book ever to appear uh, on uh, in Zen in the West called Zen in the Art of Archery. Uh, so all these things are combined, my professional practice, my uh, uh, Zen practice, my uh, archery practice. You know, Ken, that it really is just such a an array and a horizon of practice, and how uh, privileged we are that you are speaking to us on the day after of uh, your professional career and the day of 
retirement, if there even is such a thing. And it does lend me to my first question, which is, what was your own uh, beginning of a spiritual life, of a, of a place of meaning for you in growing up? Yeah. Um, well, let me just, before I answer that question, I, I just want to go tangentially. I, I, I have retired from my job as a professor, but very much not retired, and I will be putting more time into my Zen practice at this point, something I've been looking for very much. You're never going to retire, Ken. <laughs> that's, I think that's true. So uh, to, to, to address your question, um, I, I was brought up in a secular Jewish tradition. I was raised in the Chicago area. And um, long story, well, I wasn't fully secular, but I fell away from it when I was in college and uh, was very much involved. I, I turned 70 very soon, so I was involved uh, in a lot of the, or I was exposed to a lot of the turmoil of the 60s, and there was a lot of uh, uh, searching, a lot of self-seeking that was going on. Um, and I, I really dug into studying philosophy. I was almost a philosophy major I eventually obviously became a psychology major uh, and really had no, I would say I had no spiritual direction nor uh, spiritual, felt no spiritual need uh, for a long time. That changed and I can date it. It was uh, when I was in graduate school and I went to a graduate school at the University of Michigan where I studied clinical psychology. And I was introduced to a fellow graduate student. He was a couple of years my junior, and he was from Honolulu. And uh, at that point, I was studying different martial arts as kind of a sideline, although I, I, I felt I trained pretty hard in it. And um, uh, this, this other individual, who was also a psychology graduate student, uh, told me that he had studied at a Zen temple in uh, Honolulu and uh, that his teacher combined Zen practice with martial arts and other things. And uh, he invited me to basically train with him. So there were there was myself uh, and uh, one other individual, Gordon Green, who I know you know. Mm -hmm. And we all trained together, the three of us, in Zen very very uh, intensely on our own. Uh, we we built a, a training facility in, in another graduate student's basement in Ypsilanti, Michigan. Hmm. And uh, uh, um, at one point, it hit me that uh, I, 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 I had to fish or cut bait, I felt. Uh, if I was going to do Zen training more um more intensely, I would, um, I would, um, I need to do more. So long story short, I, I, I quit my job at that point. I was at the Medical College of Ohio and I spent the next year between uh, Honolulu and Japan. And that doesn't quite answer your question. So it was really meeting the man who became my Zen teacher where I felt that other dimensions were opened up in terms of, I think what most people would call a spiritual pursuit, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a Zen is is known kind of in the is kind of in our vernacular now. A lot's written about it. Uh, I mentioned uh, the book Zen in the Art of Archery, I believe, earlier, uh, which is very influential. Um, it's almost like a cottage industry. I once searched for titles. This is on Google years ago, search for titles, Zen in the Art of dot, 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 and there were like a million and a half things or something like that. So, um, um, It's really interesting because Zen is yeah. a word that is now just becoming a little more popular. And in one of your articles, and we'll make sure we link uh, your articles in, in your book too, oh, to this podcast, because I think what you're doing is you're letting us know that there's a depth here about what yeah. Zen is. And it's a little different than just the the mindfulness. And I, I use the Calm app and, and a number of different things, but understanding maybe what is Zen to you and what that means might be helpful as we talk about and move towards uh, these healing stories. Yeah. And, and Martin, you're right on the, on the point with that. I think that I, I, part of that is Zen has been, uh, Zen has been linked with kind of relaxing and chilling out hmm. when in fact it's very much the opposite. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we can talk more about, uh, about that later. So I'm sorry, I, I, I lost your question. Was, like, what is so Zen what, to me? Yeah, what is Zen to you? Because I think a number of maybe our, our listeners might yeah. not fully understand what it is because in the yeah. culture right now, it's how can I be mindful? And, and we recognize that is very important in stress reduction. Yeah. And, and also our moms, who I, I think we really try and speak to out there, we want them practicing mindfulness. But this Zen practice uh, is, is somewhat of a, um, a structured approach. And, and you talking through that a bit, I think would be helpful to yes. some people yeah. if they wanted to try it. Yeah, certainly. So let, let me say one thing, or maybe the best way to approach that is, is what is then good for? Mm. In other words, why do this? Yeah. And at its base, Zen is a way of finding, uh, I can use the term resolution, although that doesn't quite do accuracy to it. It's a way of addressing fundamental existential questions such as uh, um, what what is the nature of suffering and how do we deal with that mm-hmm. how do how do we explain that how do we deal with it how do we cope with it uh, same with with life and death everyone is going to die at some sometime how are you going to do that uh, and fundamentally, if you look at if you look at the foundational story of of Buddhism, if I can just digress to that a minute, uh, and for those of you who don't know it, um, the 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 book Herman Hesse's Siddhartha was really based on the life of the historical Buddha, and uh, he was basically the he was a prince, he was the son of a king. The king was afraid because of a prophecy that he would. Uh, he might become a spiritual leader rather than a king. So he sequestered him in the palace and gave him everything that he possibly needed. Uh, the prettiest, he married the prettiest woman. They had the best children he had. He really didn't want for anything. But uh, he somehow felt that there was more to life than what went on in the palace compound. So he got a servant to take him out and, uh, 
the first time uh, he saw uh, an old person, he said, what's that? And he said, well, we grow old. Second time, a sick person. I might have those reversed. What's that? We get sick. Third time, uh, a dead body. Uh, what's that? Well, we all die. And then um, the, 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 the last time he saw uh, like a, uh, a holy man, and he said, what's that? And he said, hey, th- these people help us figure this out. Yeah. So he left his life and went on his own training to try and figure out. It became a very, um, a very uh, like fixed idea in his head. He wanted to figure out why is there suffering in life and how do we deal with that? And through his meditative practice, which is very physical in nature, and that's key to my view of Zen training, he had a realization where he was able to resolve these these issues, and everyone resolves them in a different way. Mm-hmm. So let let me let me say that another way to address this is when someone comes in and they want to study Zen. I, I like to talk to them on a one to one basis, and um, I I basically explain what I what I just explained, and and a lot of people come in wanting different things in life. They, they want to, and relaxation and health, those are common. Those are really important thing. But what really hooks people in, in other words, what keeps people going is to figure out some kind of burning existential question. Mm-hmm. What is my nature in the world? Mm-hmm. Uh, it could vary. Uh, in my, my personal experience, it was figuring out a childhood trauma. Mm-hmm. So, uh, um, it is in that in that sense it it is uh, it's a way I, I don't want to repeat myself too many times here but it's it's a way of addressing those things so yeah. what most people what most people would would say uh, would associate with that feel relaxed feeling chill, chilled out relaxation or health. Those are byproducts, and they're not byproducts. Those are ways to help you figure out these issues through the meditative practice, but they're not goals in and of themselves. And Martin, if I can just continue this a little bit without doing yeah. uh, damage to this. So uh, in, in Zen, there's a saying that we enter the mind through the body. So a lot of people, in my experience, will associate Zen with you know, what goes on in the head and what they think about or don't think about. But in, in my view of Zen, in my tradition, we really, uh, we, we influence our mind. We control our mind through physical activities. And the physical activity, primary, primary one is called Zazen, which is seated meditation. Hmm. And that involves regulation of three elements, breathing, posture, and concentration. Mm-hmm. It's a meditative discipline. But in Zen, you don't just sit wherever you're going to sit and think good thoughts or try and figure things out. It's very physical, regulating your breathing and posture. And through that becomes very, very deep and profound changes. This is so helpful, Ken, because there's a deep practice here. And if we're going to get into story and healing and our own sense of what we're trying to pursue in life, it's much more than just a feel-good moment. 
uh, and, and you're really articulating a deep tradition that I think has a lot of opportunity now for those who are trying to wrestle with chaos and, and pain and, and their own kind of questions. And as you said, your own life experience that you were trying to deal with. Um, and, and so there is a, a formal practice of Zazen that comes from Zen, um, of a sitting meditation, of a breathing that can be done. And one thing that you brought up that I think is really uh, important is we get through our suffering uh, by going through our, mind, our body into our mind. And a lot of it uh, means there's an embodiment or a body thing to this uh, suffering we're going through. And how to pay attention to that, I would imagine Zazen provides that because it makes you, you can't run away from your breath. Uh, That's right. And, That's right. And, and in my experience in the dojo and sitting and having sat with you and other uh, healthcare professionals, physicians, uh, professors, is there is something striking too about the uh, practice of sitting together. And could you talk a little bit about that? Yes, yeah, and, and that's, that's a very, very good point. So, um, and, and let me say another part of that. Um, in, in, in my tradition of Zen, we sit facing each other. Hmm. Uh, there, there are other traditions of Zen where you sit facing the wall. Hmm. So we sit facing uh, kind of the empty space in a room, across the room from each other. And there is a tremendous resonance, resonance that is built up through this experience. So there, I, I would liken it to a form of nonverbal communication mm. or nonverbal linkage of, of consciousness in a, in a very uh, significant way. Um, so when you're sitting with a group and if particularly, if you have experienced, if you have experienced meditators, um, there is a, um, a lot of times the actual breathing will sync up, uh, uh, um, automatically, uh, non, non-consciously. So you find, even though you're not intending to do that, people will be breathing at the same rate in the same time. And it, there develops a sort of, of group consciousness. Um, th- does that address what you're asking? It, it does or, because I well, think, maybe I can ask you, what was your experience with it? Well, yeah, because, well, I, I had been taught by, uh, uh, Everett Ogawa as you uh-huh. uh, had worked with and, and been a, a part of his own consciousness and it was very different to be in meditation and work with that in part of uh, my own healing and then to do it in a community. And it was interesting yeah. because I've had two experiences. One was on Wednesday nights in Chicago. I would go up to one of the top floors in a high-rise building with people who were all over, I believe, 65, and we just uh-huh. sat together and, and did a breathing meditation for 30 minutes. Now, uh-huh. I... I had never done this in my life. All of them were, um, you know, recovering. And I was just simply invited to be there as a kind of fellow traveler on the road. And it really got me thinking about the whole aspect of healing and doing it in silence and through breathing. 
And some people would talk then afterwards, but the the way that you would uh, congregate together in in this kind of sangha, I think, is you know you can tell I'm a novice in terms of the Buddhism. No, nope, sangha, sangha is a yeah, that's you, you know part of the yeah. circle. I did yeah. I did find. Um, there was great relief and I could watch even when we did it with all of the physicians who were struggling with burnout that they really presented signs of they almost sat up taller by the end of the session. And Uh when you took two different pictures, the pictures Uh showed people who were taller and we had spent Uh only a few days together. So this Uh method of what it is you're, you're, uh, proposing tonight, I do think it is extraordinarily helpful to both the patients of uh, those who are out there who are trying to relax the mind, but then also of caregivers who haven't yet found maybe a practice uh, that they're comfortable with. And and that's why I wanted to invite you into this conversation tonight, because there's a real healing story to this. And I wonder if you yourself um, have seen over the years uh, people's healing based upon this practice. Yes. And and if, let me, let me, let me throw out some, some Japanese terminology, and I'll try to explain it, because there are some concepts that I think uh, uh, tie into that, uh, if that's all right. Yes, please. Uh, I, okay, I don't want to take yeah, this no. on a, a road you don't. So one is there is a Japanese term called samadhi. Actually, it comes from a Hindu tradition. Uh, we use it. We use this. The, the, the uh, you know Sanskrit word for that, and samadhi is similar but different than mindfulness. Samadhi is a word; it doesn't have a good trend, a good um, um, translation in English. The ones that you'll hear are concentration or deep concentration, presence. Um, one, there are two that I particularly like. One is is alert awareness, and uh, uh, the other one is absorption. Absorption is when you are concentrating on something so intensely that you lose the sense of boundary between you and it. So um, samadhi is very key to our our, I mean, my tradition of sense explanation of things, and uh, there are there are some ways that you that you can know when you're in samadhi. Uh, things appear clearer, uh, and um, you develop peripheral vision. It's it's um, when I first heard this, I didn't believe it, but uh, it feels like you're seeing 180 degrees. Yes, but more fundamentally, the the chatter in your mind drops out. So uh, yet another way to describe samadhi is that you do not um, uh, you do not have unnecessary thought. Without going into, I could talk more about this if later. But most of us think one thing and then we think another thing related to it. This is the term monkey mind is yes, often used. Brain. I don't like uh-huh. that term. Yeah, monkey, yeah, I'm not wild about the term, but it's, you know, we just pursue one thought after the other. And my teacher used to liken it to, if you look at a spinning propeller, if you look at one blade, that's kind of all you see, your mind whips around with that. But if you kind of step back and look through it, you're not attached to any particular blade, but 
you have a different sense of awareness. And that's a good metaphor for samadhi. So it's, it's, it's seeing things without uh, reflecting on them necessarily. Mm. You have a sensory experience. You see whatever it is. You feel whatever it is. And you're not then saying, oh, what does this mean in uh, this whole chain of association? So that's samadhi. The other is uh, in the Japanese tradition we call ki or kiai, and that's the Japanese pronunciation of the Chinese uh, character for chi. And I think a lot of people know what chi is. That's the vital energy. And that really develops through the body, through basically being in posture. And that, a lot of the Chinese system, the Asian system of healing involves uh, involves qi, both within oneself. Qi gong is the practice of moving it around in yourself, but also projecting it onto other people. Uh, and... Um, I guess that's the best way of experiencing that. But another way that I would I would describe this, these two things, samadhi and chi, ki, ki, we call it, are very closely related. Because when you are in this state of samadhi, which is this intense, this intense awareness and presence, uh, that is conveyed sympathetically to people. They pick up on it. And it has a calming and a healing aspect. And this is probably the most vital thing that we work on. We have seminars. We have our seminar series for uh, uh, people in the healing arts and uh, medical professionals. And this is one of the main things that we teach: that samadhi and, and chi these have profound influence on patients. Yeah, this is, I think, the real future place for us to be uh, visionary and animators of healing that uh -huh. at times is not given attention because maybe it's not as deductive, but there is something about being in the presence of, and I think Ginny Whitelaw is someone, and I hope to have her on this recording at, at some Great. point, because you know, you're in the presence of people and you just walk away and you said, what was that about? And, and wouldn't that be beautiful if we had that in every 15-minute clinic experience? Uh, it, but I think that takes a lot of practice. And what you're uh, helping us to see tonight is there is a need for our practice. It just doesn't happen. Chi is something that is uh, out there that can be given, but it's not something that um, just just comes to you by by the whim of uh, energy drink or of uh, <laughs> you know a, a green yes, a yes. green smoothie and maybe yeah, a yeah. number of uh, calm meditations. <laughs> These are all very yeah. important, but. Yeah. One of the things of your healing story, and maybe you could talk a little bit about that that moment with the hurrah, because I think there's something very pertinent to that when it finally clicked with you. Um, okay. Because because yeah. we wanna we wanna learn how is it that an individual can come into a space and really themselves be healed. And, yeah. and I'm not talking about uh, something that you can't achieve because you can't go over to the fountain at Medjugorje. I'm talking about that you can, right. le you can yeah. learn this practice yeah. and you yourself yeah. could begin healing in, in your chi. Yeah. So, so the, the fundamental breathing practice in, in our tradition, and this is really what I'm focusing on at this point of my life, uh, is what's called hot breathing. 
And again, this is another Japanese word. Doesn't really have a good, doesn't have a good translation into English. Literally, it refers to the lower abdomen. But it also has connotations in Japanese language、uh, in the psychological sphere and the spiritual sphere. So I like to think of hara is where these three planes or spheres of the human experience intersect. That's the physical, the psychological, and the and the, and the spiritual.、Uh, so hara breathing is a very deep. It's a form of deep abdominal breathing.、Uh, when you well, a, a lot of people know this is also something that's kind of <clears throat> excuse me become in our lexicon、uh, belly breathing, yes,、right. or abdominal breathing, and most people know what that is. And I would say hot breathing is kind of abdominal breathing on steroids.、Hmm. So,、uh, but if someone doesn't、um, know, Ken, could you just explain、yeah. belly breathing? Because I do think it's a fantastic way、yes. for for people to、yes. kind of live in our world right now. Yes, and that's just yeah, that's just what what I was going to do. Okay. So, so belly breathing is when you are driving your inhalation and exhalation with your lower abdomen rather than the muscles of your chest and and neck. And so on. So you could look at these as levels of, of breathing. If you if you see someone who's belly breathing, it will dis they'll distinguish themselves from someone who's doing regular breathing, which we call chest chest breathing or uh, uh, thoracic breathing, chest thorax same thing. You'll see that their lower abdomen, so the the spot below. Their their navel, their belly button, basically goes in and out with the breathing. So when they inhale, the lower abdomen goes out, or it's like a bellows. And when they breathe in, it goes in. So in and out like that. So、um, the chest, it's this has actually been been studied.、Uh, I've seen、uh, research from Japan that abdominal breathing or belly breathing is much more efficient than chest breathing because the if you look at the the diaphragm, which is the、uh, it's a muscle as cartilage and tops, it's right below the the、uh, bottom of the ribs. That's the major muscle of inhalation when you breathe in. It goes down like a piston.、Uh, people who Who belly breathe actually have greater range of motion of the diaphragm than people who chest breathe, and the reason is you have a lot of if you have a lot of muscular tension in your chest, it interferes with the descent of the diaphragm.、Hmm. But that's only one part of it, and that is the there's a lot of research that's come out about the significance of the abdomen, and particularly the lower abdomen. Uh, the term has been coined the abdominal brain or the second brain.、Mm -hmm. uh, it's an area of the body that's very rich in in、uh, nerves. And、uh, I was surprised to learn—I learned this from medical students—that、uh, the, the lower abdomen、uh, is a very—it's、um, a very significant source of the origin and origin of 
the production of serotonin in the body. Hmm. And serotonin is a neurotransmitter. It figures into a lot of uh, uh, brain activity and brain chemistry. A lot of people know it through treatment of, of depression. So by 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 breathing through the lower abdomen, I'm convinced that you're stimulating the the production of neurotransmitters that affect what you're doing. In the Chinese tradition, in the Chinese Taoist tradition, the lower abdomen was really the seat of qi. Mm. So the more you can develop that, the more of this this qi, this vital energy you're producing, it vitalizes the body and it's good for health. But also, and this is so clear from my experience, that um, the lower abdomen, um, the lower abdominal breathing uh, is what creates samadhi. So samadhi isn't something that happens. I, and, and Martin, I think you were referring to that. This is something that happened. If you train, you do it. You create it in yourself. You take it with you. Hmm. And this comes from abdominal breathing. Now, just one, I don't want to dwell on a fine point. What we call hot breathing is actually in some ways a step beyond abdominal breathing where the lower abdomen stays expanded throughout. And that's a more difficult technique. Yeah. And Martin, I, I think that the story that you're asking me to tell was was uh, what I call how I found my hot Yeah. Uh, okay, so so when I when I got my Zen practice when I started my Zen practice, and I had I trained in about four years in in a form of karate, uh, and and I, I thought I was pretty well trained. Uh, when I was given my first zazen Zen meditation instruction, they told me breathe with your hot on, not your upper body, and I couldn't do it. Now, I, I knew the term hara from my martial arts experience, uh, but no, no one ever taught me how to do it. And I tried all these things. It was fairly frustrating for me. And uh, as I've written a couple times, uh, in Zen Temple, the guys in charge of the sitting walks around and uh, uh, traditionally carry a stick and you know, it's kind of intimidating, and always tell me, "Breathe with your out, breathe with your out." And I would try something different, and say, every time he'd come up, same thing, time after time after time. So somehow I kept at it, and uh, uh, then one day, and and this is this is I think the expression you want to say, something changed, and I remember this. I every time I tell this story, if I can, I can recall the feeling, and uh, just briefly, I had. I was living in Toledo then, but I'd come up for uh, Zen meditation several times a week in uh, Ypsilanti. It's about an hour and a half drive. Uh, but I had gotten into a big fight with my boss in Toledo, and I got in the car, and I was just really upset. And and then I had a half hour to stew in my juices about it and uh, just be thinking about how wrong wrong I was. And, and when I got out of the car, I was really in a tizzy. Then I went into, into our training training area and change clothes and I was telling people around me what happened and you know they're being very polite but you know who kind of who cares but then as I as I talked about it I got more and more steamed up but then all of a sudden it's like something popped in my lower abdomen hmm. and it felt like we use the term in Zen my stomach dropped my is my my center of gravity shifted down and I felt this tremendous freedom and range of motion in my lower abdomen, 
uh, uh, I, it's like suddenly I was just breathing different. My whole body felt different. And then I noticed that all this stuff I was worrying about that happened today and, and re going over again and again, the events of the day, it just disappeared. And I remember as I walked down the hall to take my spot for Zen meditation, I felt, I, I, I had this feeling, you know, this is what 180 degree vision is. And I felt this tremendous sense of alert calm. And then this kind of told myself, I said, Oh, I finally found my hara. Mm -hmm. So, so, there, this this work I put into it was was really uh, worthwhile, and and my Zen training from that point has been variations of deepening this and refining it, and my body never went back to what it was before. Mm. It's like my physiology changed, and it was from one breath to the other. Mm. Now, as I became a Zen teacher and a Zen, uh, well, yes, a Zen teacher, particularly in my later years. I've been putting as much attention as I possibly can in how do we teach us? Is there a way to make it more acceptable? Or not acceptable, but easier for people to have this experience. And I'm convinced that it's possible. And that's what my blog is about. And I have some exercises. These are something anyone can do yeah, um, I at think home. It would be wonderful for people to go and just see the blog and we'll attach it to this um, because your healing story, as I think of it, really happened in a breath. And, it happened from one breath to the other. And, and, and that, to me, is a great uh, inspiration that, you know, we might have pilgrimages all our life, but if we're not aware that healing could happen in a breath, then that would be a missed opportunity. And what our conversation tonight and with Zazen and with Zen, I think is really preparing us for an awareness of this moment and the presence of the moment and that, that healing that could take place or, or whatever you want to call it. If you don't want to use the word healing, just, just, well, a, I think that's a good word, you know, yeah. a, a general kind of, uh, movement, uh, is it, just, it, it, it can happen. And I believe in it. And, and you could call it a miracle. You could call it whatever it is. But but there is something here with this practice that I've really appreciated you sharing with us. Is, is there anything else out there that, that you had wanted to share? Uh, I mean, boy, you really yeah. have, have an opportunity to look back and, and say anything. Yeah. Uh, just wanted to give you that time. Well, I appreciate that. But let me just say say maybe one or two other things and I'll try and keep short. So in my, I worked as a psychotherapist for 40 years, and, and it became clear to me through my Zen training that if I basically did the same breathing and posture in Zazen when I was with patients, it gave me a sense of awareness and presence that I think was felt by them in yeah. different ways. We talk a lot now about therapeutic presence. Hmm. Uh, and in our uh, when I work with physicians or I work with psychotherapists, I really, I, I try to bring this point home that a lot's been written on what is, what is in psychotherapy is then in medicine. It's really developing the samadhi in and of yourself. Hmm. That has miraculous effect on people. That's it has a calming, it has a healing effect. So, hmm. uh, all, all I would, not all, but the main thing I would try to do would be to create samadhi. And when that happens, there's a spont 
spontaneity of action that comes through that really has a healing effect. As a psychotherapist, it's as as much uh, giving people room to talk and giving them a container for for their feeling. But I think it's it's as as uh, significant for physicians. But also, so what what we teach physicians is before you go into an exam room. When you knock on the door, set your breathing. If you can breathe abdominally as best you can, take a couple slow breaths. Go in the room and see if you can maintain that feeling. We say, see if you can uh, uh, see 180 degrees. And when you sit down, sit down in the same equivalent posture that you'd have when you when you have zazen, uh, which is you know you don't slouch. You sit in a way that frees up your breathing. As you slow your breathing down, the patient will will experience that. Hmm. In other words, that has that gives out. I, I'm going to use a vernacular term here: healing vibes. Huh. But I'll tell. I, I maybe I'll end this with one funny story. Sure. So uh, the first time we did a seminar on this, we had a very experienced uh, family physician. Actually, he was my department chair time and uh we taught taught this exercise go in the room set your breath see 180 degrees sit down take some some breaths you know sit like you're doing zazen and we had introduced the term hara but he couldn't remember that <laughs> okay so oh well he he came to me the next day at work you know we finished the seminar on sunday he came to me on monday he said it really works he said i knocked on the door and I said my udon. Now, <laughs> udon is a Japanese word for a noodle. So he basically said, I adjusted my noodle. But I knew what he meant. The word is hara, and that's your breathing. So uh, I have, I have people who say they still do that. That's so good. that's it. Remember to set your hara. <laughs> set your hara. Well, I, I just have to say, no, you guys I know are having some, uh, is there a way that people could look up some of the uh, experiences in, in Zen Leadership too that, that's coming up as well? You mean the, the uh, workshops that yeah. are available? Uh-huh. Or, yeah, those are on the Institute for Zen Leadership page okay. or, or, or uh, uh, website. That's uh, just Google Institute for Zen Leadership. Mm-hmm. Um like I said, I I don't remember Institute Zen Leadership. I should have looked that up in yeah. advance. If you Google it, or, or you I'll can write me the... if you can put that out, and then go to uh, uh, you know go to uh, programs. Yeah. And we have we have programs for people, uh, uh, medical leaders and healers. It's called the Heal Program, and Martin, that's what you went through. Yeah. Uh-huh. And it's uh, uh, healthy, embodied, agile leaders. And that, that that explains what we are are trying to accomplish. Well, and uh, people on, on my look on my blog, uh, do feel free to write me uh, uh, directly, um, and uh, if I can answer any questions that way, I would be more than happy to. Well, I I really hope that uh, those who listen will find this practice uh, one that does heal in their own story. But one of the great uh, gifts of tonight is just to have listened to you uh, reflect on all that you have learned. And it will be interesting to, in a number of years, 
to come back and say, what have you learned in this new space? Uh, as, okay. as our friend, you know, Everett Ogawa would say, you always come with an empty cup. And I feel like uh, you're you're coming into this 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 new place with an empty cup, and I wish you the best of luck with that too. Okay, thank you very much. I, I've really enjoyed this, and uh, uh, I feel honored to uh, to have done this. Wonderful. Well, it, it's been an honor for us, and and I look forward to the next time that our paths will cross. So again, Ken, thank you for this opportunity. Okay. Thank you. Right. Time heals all wounds. Join us for our next episode of Healing Stories.